anything combat with Johnny K. Well, it's anything combat, though. Welcome back, combats, the anything combat show, where we discuss everything mixed martial arts. I'm your host, Johnny K, and today we're joined by international black belt coach in jiu-jitsu. His life mission and goal in jiu-jitsu is to make it accessible for every single skill level so everybody can have access to BJJ and develop their skills in the martial art. Please welcome Charles Harriet. How are you today, Charles? I'm doing great, man. I'm doing great. Charles, I've got an interesting question for you. What's your nationality? Yeah, so we'll start first with the the notion of like, so I'm not exactly giving up my back. It's an important distinction between, um, and actually I'm going to steal this line. I can't remember if it was Chris Payne's or uh, Preet Mickelson who first said it. It's like, you don't have my back, you're just behind me. And it's a very important difference. Just because someone's behind me doesn't mean they have control of me. And so it comes from my root thought process of denying people access to controlling my armpit. And kind of the direct way of dealing with that um, is just to close your armpits. So people, if you've ever seen people uh, just denying seatbelt, they close their armpits up, make it like a cannonball position, they can't get controlled. What the frame is doing, which is slightly different, is I'm opening my armpit, but by fixing my elbow onto your shoulder or your armpit or somewhere else, I'm denying you the access to get close enough to attach to my back. So even though you might be behind me, your body isn't in a position to actually click in and attach into my armpits. My only real problem would be if I opened my other armpit, so even though I had my frame here, they would get in that armpit. But as long as I keep this kind of closed and strip them off my hip, it's going to make it um, difficult. As far as the elbow frame in particular, the main notion of any frame is that it only works while it's being compressed. So elbow framing in general works against an aggressive opponent. The more that you drive into me, the more that you run into the wall that is my humerus. The same thing would be my femur if I used a frame with my knee. So as long as they're pressuring forward and chasing my back, they can't slip past my elbow to get to my back, the little top of my elbow. However, if they're going to slip past like a shuck by or a throw by, they have to relinquish pressure. So I'm using my forearm like a probe. 
And so the second that I feel them relinquish pressure, I know they're going to try and slide by me, in which case I have to turn and face them in that moment to prevent them from getting to my back. But as long as they come at me with heavy pressure, they're going to keep getting stuck. And that power that they're driving into me, I use to build a base and begin standing up. Usually the, the hip heist or technical stand up to my knee, followed by rising all the way to my feet if they keep pressing forward. Coach, what happens when they get access to your armpit region? Like, is it game over from there? In your opinion, because you're a black belt, when it happens to you, how do you deal with that situation? Well, I think that to go through an entire jiu-jitsu match with your opponent never, ever getting access to your armpits is, is pretty hard to, uh, to accomplish unless you're absolutely perfect or completely idle meaning you don't do anything. If I shell all the way up and just sit there like a lump, I can make your life very hard, but it's also incredibly boring for both of us. So in the same way that if you've ever run wrestling, one of the first drills you do in wrestling is the swim drill, right? I have an underhook, you have an underhook, and we kind of swim back and forth. So in wrestling, wrestlers know this for a long time. When someone has control of your armpit with an underhook, either you remove it, right by pummeling your arm into their armpit or you clamp down on it with an overhook same thing goes for someone having their hands in my armpits if they're behind me i'm going to hold on to their hand and pummel my elbow back in we're all very accustomed to pummeling in with our hands but our elbows do the same thing what continents have you trained jiu-jitsu in and have you come to australia where i'm at I have, I don't know if I've been to where you are in Australia, but I have been to Perth. I went to Australia for the first time this year. I visited a, a couple of gyms there, um, Taurus, um, Essence, and um, I feel so bad. I'm forgetting one of them that I went to, and he was such a nice guy. Ah, I went to three gyms, uh, Taurus, Essence, and one more. I'll, I'll look it up for the show notes. Um, they were great. Um I've been to Japan, I've been to Asia. I've, my, one of my goals was to try to train and or teach Jiu-Jitsu in every continent on Earth. I've successfully done so in North America, South America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Um, I still haven't been to Africa yet, and I still haven't been to Antarctica. Africa is on like the sites for 2024. I want to try and find a way to get to train or teach somewhere in Africa, where it, whether it be South Africa or Egypt or Morocco. I don't, I don't know where I'm going to end up. I heard about there being an opportunity in, uh, in Kenya. I, I really don't know. I just, I want to, uh, I don't know. I enjoy seeing how different everything is all around the world and also how, how the same it is. Certain things are very different. Other things are just the exact same. Who has the best jiu-jitsu in the UFC right now? Whose style oh, do wow. you appreciate the most? That's so hard. Wow. Um, who has the best jiu-jitsu in the UFC? I would say, in my opinion, the contenders are Pantoja, Oliveira, and... totally forgot who I was going to say. I totally forgot who I was going to say. There was one other guy, Aljamain Sterling, right? Those three, I would say, are the three main contenders. Do you agree with that or is there someone else? I would definitely put them on the list, right? Because Maya has retired, so you can't, you can't take the easy out with him anymore. Gilbert Burns 
has amazing jujitsu. I've had the lucky opportunity to uh, to roll with him and take some classes from before. He doesn't tend. I think it's the same thing that kind of happens to high level wrestlers, right? Once a high level wrestler realizes they can knock people out, if you think about a lot of them, like um, Johnny Hendricks back in the day, um, Koscheck, Yo Romero, they're all elite level wrestlers. But once they realize, oh wow, I can Dan Henderson, I can knock somebody out really easily. Later in their careers, they tend to just start knocking people out instead of using their wrestling. I think that kind of the same thing happened there with Burns, where like Burns is probably, I think, the most accomplished grappler active in the UFC right now, but he doesn't tend to get go after subs. He, he he's but because he, he's made himself a complete fighter, he's now excellently you know knocking people out and using the full ground and pound has wrestling as well, so. If I'm talking about just as far as the skills that they have, I'd probably go Gilbert Burns. But if we're talking about what they're doing in the UFC, not just their skills in general, then I think that your list is beautiful. I think that uh, Oliveira has definitely racked up quite a few submissions. Um, also, yeah, I would actually agree with that. I think this, it's a great list. As somebody I would put on there, even though he's not necessarily just doing BJJ, is Volkanovski. I think the way that Volkanovski has used his grappling, that's why I said whether you're calling it grappling or jiu-jitsu, it's hard to like dice out what's jiu-jitsu and what's wrestling and what's this and that. But Volkanovski has shown amazing grappling, his ability to neutralize the wrestling, you know, the the most recent match against um, Islam was, was probably the best example of that, where like Islam has destroyed everyone. Really elite-level jiu-jitsu guys just, just made them look like, and Volkanovski was able to have him on his back and, be attacking, be like laughing with this animal on his back as if he didn't care. So I, you'd have to put, I think, Volk on the list, even though he's not necessarily, at least on the defensive side of things, the same way that he was able to just kind of absorb that that famous guillotine and just that everyone thought like, oh, he's going to sleep and he, he just was fine. So I, on the defensive side of things, probably Volk. As far as submission output, I probably agree with you on Oliveira. Let's talk about that relationship between BJJ and Sambo. You have the rematch between Oliveira and Makachev. Why do you feel that Oliveira's grappling game was neutralized in the first fight between the two because of the martial art differences? I don't know. Um, I think a piece of it might just very well be the stylistic factor of kind of how jiu-jitsu is taught or it has historically been taught. Oliveira is a he's not by any means old. Like he's he's still young in the ability he still hasn't been on kind of his physical decline yet, but his jiu-jitsu comes from, you know, for lack of a word, like like he was learning jiu-jitsu 10 years ago, even 20 years ago. And stylistically pinning and dealing with that immense wrestling style that is so popular from Dagestan was not the main feature of jiu-jitsu at that point. The main feature of jiu-jitsu was really just dealing with strikers, getting inside of their range, and submitting them. The elite, like, there was no Khabib 20 years ago, right? There was no really high-level Sambo player with that grinding, gritty style that everyone has emulated from Khabib. That didn't exist 10 years ago. I would I say, that, just to interrupt, sorry, coach, I would say that Fedor Emelianenko was probably uh, the best example back in the day. That's a great, you know, it's a good point. 
But I don't think yeah. that, to, to clarify in terms of the UFC pool, because we're talking about the UFC, you're 100% right. Though even Fedor was, I would say, just as good at Sambo as could be, but I don't think stylistically. Fedor threw a bit more strikes. Fedor was, I would dare I say, even more explosive than Khabib. Khabib is more of like that Terminator just walking at you. I think one of my the most impressive versions of that was the match versus Edson Barbosa, where you could tell that he was just slowly plodding forward and was going to drag Edson to the floor. And Edson, who's always historically looked so comfortable and dynamic, was kind of had the wind out of himself. Whereas you compare that to how Fedor used to... I think Fedor almost mixed all three ranges a bit more than Khabib, where I think Khabib had that slow climbing the rope smothering wrestling ground and pound style where everyone kind of knew that Khabib is going to is going to smash you he's going to pressure past you he's going to beat you up he's going to push you against the cage he's going to suck your legs together whereas with Fedor he had that kind of winging big hook that he then took into with big kind of like bigger takedowns and then a bit more of a varied submission game whereas I think Khabib generally is, is going face crank slash rear naked choke or arm triangle for most of his his submissions. If you're not, he's not just punching you or just convincing you to tap out in that like you know famous clip where he's just like just give up and he's punching the poor guy who's who's helpless. Like it's even though Sambo did exist, right? There were Sambo practitioners. I don't think there was anyone stylistically doing the Khabib Dagestani style. Because I know Fedor is a Sambo practitioner, but I do not believe Fedor is from Dagestan. I don't believe he's that style of wrestler, despite being a Sambo guy. I might be wrong. Maybe Fedor is, Fedor is from Dagestan, and I'm just completely wrong on this. But the style, if you look at a Fedor fight and a Khabib fight, or and all of the people from Khabib's camp now, it doesn't aesthetically look the same. I would say that there is a really big relationship between like the Chemaev and the Khabib style chain wrestling system and then the judo takedown system of Khabib and Fedor. See, I feel like Khabib had both of the chain wrestling, I'm coming after you wrestling, while still incorporating the judo. The reason I feel like you were saying about Fedor throwing a big hook into a takedown, I feel like he was utilizing those judo grips um, very oh, well. Agree. Yeah, yeah. Very right. well. When you say that, that reminds me of um, Caro Parisian used to do the same thing. Because the hook wasn't the point. The point of the big hook was to catch you for an Uchimata or Harai Goshi afterwards because the same swing. You're 100% right. But to get to what the point I was trying to make was, I don't believe that most MMA or Jiu-Jitsu people up until recently were really had a good answer for that. Where I think that Volkanovski, like credit to the you know Just Stand Up instruction that Craig put out right before the fight, like, I don't think that it was analyzed and addressed in that way. So I don't know there's really a lack in Oliveira's jiu-jitsu. I think that his jiu-jitsu, when you look at jiu-jitsu as to what it is, right, the system of jiu-jitsu of control and submission was missing. I think it was more of a lack of anti-wrestling. Because I do think that, like, that's the hard part with, like, what do we put in the bag that is jiu-jitsu? And what do we put in the bag that is wrestling? I don't think that like the obsession with defense, the defensive side of jiu-jitsu has really been focused on as much as it has been recently. I think that because at the end of the day, offense is the exciting part, right? When you go to a jiu-jitsu gym, what are they going to teach you in the first couple weeks? Usually, 
to be fair, they will probably teach you a knee elbow escape. They'll probably teach you what side control it is. And maybe they'll, they'll show you this, how to be safe and, and tap, etc. But the second that you get any further, you're learning armbar, triangle, omoplata, rear naked choke, guillotine. We, when we think of jiu-jitsu, we think of the submissions. Whereas I really do think that some of these just fundamental positional controls and positional systems of denying access to those hips, denying access to someone being able to march forward and continue to crush you, especially in that body lock, hands together style, I don't know that it's really taught very often. At least I know that I was never taught an answer to those things in my upbringing in jiu-jitsu because it wasn't really something I had to deal with. I dealt with people who might do some wrestling, but then they're going to start passing my guard and doing stuff. Or some people who might do some judo, but there was always kind of this separation where people are doing their stand-up and doing their ground. Whereas Khabib really, and that style seamlessly doesn't let you get up. And I think that the framing, I think Ryan Hall was ahead of his time. Ryan Hall, I think, had a beautiful framing system that he was obsessing over, what, like 10 years ago at this point? And I don't know many other people that if you go back 10 years ago, that would be influencing a Charles Oliveira or anybody else. Um, we're really in the jiu-jitsu world obsessing over defensive systems, right? The, I did, most jiu-jitsu's view of defense was don't show them your back, you know, keep your elbows in, even though most people say keep your elbows in, right? I'm trying to set up so you can see. This is your elbows in, but there's still this gap between your elbow and your hip, which is very, very vulnerable. So most people in jiu-jitsu, your coach tells you two rex arms, they tell you to keep your elbows in, and you think you're doing a good job, but then your coach can always still mount you. Your coach can always still pry your elbow up. Why? Because your elbows aren't really in. Your elbows are only in if they connect to your hips. Now your elbows are in. So I can't speak for Oliveira. I, I, I could not do what he does. I just think that the, the way that Volkanovsky was able to approach things a little different Helped. I think that anybody who watched how Islam struggled versus Volkanovski will, if they have an open mind, be able to poke those same holes in the game. You know, like once uh, once somebody struggles, it's kind of a cue to everybody else to look, and they're gonna re, uh, you know, hopefully like adopt that and make it so that Islam is gonna have to evolve, or he's gonna have more situations where he can't just enact the game plan as he, as he did all the way up to his championship. So a rematch between Charles Oliveira and Makachev, do you believe that if Charles implements Volkanovski's counter-wrestling systems that Craig Jones so perfectly created and, and game-planned, do you think Charles has a better chance of beating the current champion? Well, here's the thing. I think he has a better chance, but even Volkanovski didn't win that fight you know like he did great he never got finished he looked excellent but he still lost the decision so i think he's gonna have to do that and more and some of that because if you look at it the magic of charles Oliveira is that he usually wins when he looks like he's losing is that something will go wrong and then he pulls it and then like it's as almost as if the adversity allows him to enter a even better place. And so I, I, I do think that 
And that's really the true magic of him in, in these these times, like his knockouts, his submissions. A lot of, they usually came right after the opponent seemed to be doing well. So if he can add that, you know, Charles Oliveira magic on top of making it so that he can punish, um, can punish Makachev, maybe? I don't know. I, I'm very, back in the day when there was like, you know, probably 50 fighters to follow. I was very good at kind of guessing who was going to win fights, but there's so many fighters these days and just so many matches that like truly knowing who's going to win or and what's going to happen. I'm I'm not very good at it anymore. Like I I do believe that a key part of Makachev's game is being able to deeply attach to his opponents. I believe that a Charles Oliveira can prevent and slow down his ability to attach at will and when he does attach make it so that he's not able to sink into those attachments that he'll do better absolutely beyond that i don't know man uh, unfortunately i i don't have a crystal ball on that one coach you mentioned before the jiu-jitsu champion gilbert burns one yeah. fight that i watched a little bit ago was gilbert versus tyrone woodley now, this is an older fight um, during the COVID era of the UFC. And when I was watching it, I saw just the level of skill that Gilbert had against T-Wood. And Tyrone is a black belt in jiu-jitsu as well. So when it got to the ground, the transitions, every single transition favored Gilbert. To be honest... I feel like if Gilbert used that particular style that he used perfectly against T-Wood to his other stocky wrestlers, kind of like at Covington or in his fight with Usman, I feel like if he got into those scenarios with those fighters, that it wouldn't have even been close. T-Wood is a better jiu-jitsu player than Colby and Usman, and, and Gilbert destroys T-Wood's jiu-jitsu. So I feel like maybe it's just the style that that Gilbert's such a big power puncher that he refuses to get into these scenarios, and I, I feel like I feel like if he gets thrown into a position like that, we even saw with Neil Magny, one fighter that chose to implement the BJJ into their fight when they were in a contentious moment to really wrestle and grapple together he submitted him inside like a couple minutes. So I feel like the more, I feel like the more Gilbert uses a jiu-jitsu approach with his power punching, I think that even now after his injuries, if he can get a two to three win streak, I don't see a problem with him winning the championship. I completely agree. The hard part is everything that goes into the decisions made in a fight. Like, I still think there's levels to this. Tyrone Woodley is a black belt, but like Gilbert Burns eats black belts for breakfast. Like he's there there are levels. Like Gilbert Burns is a world champion jujitsu black belt who not only has the skill and the savviness, but is also a superhuman athlete. Like he is immensely coordinated, immensely skilled, has an amazing gas tank, like he has it all, but there's something about getting that moment. I, I think it's just a very visceral human thing. Everybody who realizes that they have dynamite in their hands, it's seductive. Even if you look back to 
fighters as disciplined as a Lyoto Machida. Lyoto Machida's original style, for lack of a better word, was a little bit unfan friendly. It was a little boring. It was beautiful. He was untouchable. No one could hit him, but he got booed. He'd win every fight, but he got booed. Then he strung together a few knockouts. And the crowd loved him. And there's that yell and there's that fire. And then even a fighter as disciplined stylistically as Machida, fell prey to falling in love with the knockout. There's something about, I can only imagine the notion of throwing a singular strike and the roar of 20,000, 40,000, 50,000 people after that singular punch. Not to mention the win bonuses for stoppages. Like, there has, they think there's a big thing that there's got to be a reason. Maybe I'm, I'm missing something why all of these guys who are superior grapplers to their opponents but also have knockout power get into this phase of their career where they just start knocking people out even and even when they can't knock people out it's like they've they're fixated on that that piece of their game i completely agree with you i think i don't know who really beats gilbert burns in a grappling match in the ufc in his weight class and and to a degree beyond i think if you get heavy enough obviously he's going to have some problems but I don't know, but if you the great example was um you know what Shemaev did versus um oh, that short notice fight where he missed weight versus uh, Nate Diaz versus Kevin Holland, if Shemaev had a stand up fight with Kevin Holland, it might have went very differently. Even if we had a mixed approach where we sprinkled in some stand up, Kevin Holland could clip and kept like it would be a fight, but he proved like. If a pure grappling match, I eat your lunch. And he just did it. You know? I don't know why. Maybe it's the game planning. Maybe it's the fact that because he is that elite jiu-jitsu guy, his training camp is worried that that's what his opponents are prepared for. Maybe he doesn't believe. Or maybe it just really is that, like, he likes knocking people out. I, I don't I don't know, man. I, 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 it's... Something I have to, I want to look into, but like, there's just so many. The list goes on of elite level wrestlers and jiu-jitsu guys that if they put it together and find that power, it's just they can't they can't step away from it. I don't I don't I don't know. I I wish I was more uh, more versed and had more more numbers to see examples of exceptions of truly. I think maybe like a Randy Couture type character. He never then again he never really had true one-hit knockout power. He was usually more of an accumulated uh, destroyer. But, you know, you're right. Yo Romero, Dan Henderson, the list goes on. I can't think of anyone who has that that power that was able to necessarily, like, step away from it. It's, uh, I don't know, man. It's, it's probably something, I don't know. Maybe a new psychiatrist for it. I, I, don't, I don't have an answer. I think one example of what you're saying, I would say Usman did a really good job with it. So Mm. when I feel like the perfect game is when you're a grappling dominant fighter and you know you can finish someone with a really big punch or you have particular punches like an overhand or an inverted overhand or a two that you can just launch people and then they're they're gone or a really good jab like Usman. I feel like once you know that you have this ridiculous power in your hands, if you continue with the grappling style and be patient continue with that one hit a quitter one hit a quitter punch but if it doesn't come 
don't stay in the striking, engage in your original game plan, original mindset for fighting, I think that's a world champion. Kamara Usman, he he knocked out Jorge Masvidal, knew that he was a power puncher, and with that coach, Trevor Whitnam, I believe that they had probably discussed it, that when it's a striking um, where you're losing the striking battle, you need to go straight to the grappling. And when you engage in that striking, if you get the right strike off, then you're good to go. But you're engaging in the grappling because Jorge, he in the first round, he engaged in the grappling with a clinch and he took him down easily and controlled him. But the second round, he striked with him, lost a couple striking um, striking exchanges, lost like four in a row against Jorge because Jorge is a good MMA striker. Then he feints a takedown, grabs his wrist, and hits him with a two. That's where he had the sequence, because if the two didn't land, he was going to go straight to the grappling sequence. That's, I feel like, pitter-pattering and stuttering it it out, I think is the best way, um, stuttering it out, is the best way to do it. And if you saw, this was confirmed when he fought Leon Edwards in their second fight, because when he when he fought Leon, he lost the first and and somewhat lost the second when it came to just purely striking. So he grappled him for the rest of the fight and engaged in the striking in moments. So he used this and he was going to win that fight against Leon until he got head kicked. Everybody knows that fight, but it's just the fact that that particular game plan, constantly switching it, constantly changing where you're striking, where what you're striking getting involved with a massive power punch moment that could lead to the end sequence of the fight, whilst then, if it doesn't work, go straight into your grappling sequences is probably the smartest way to fight. And I feel like, going on a tangent, I feel like Bo Nickel is mastering this right now. Oh, I completely agree. So just go through all of those. Like, I actually saw both those matches. Those are actually working out really well that the matches that you're bringing up are ones that I, I saw as well. Um... In the case of the Jorge Masvidal fight, I completely agree, and I agree that I think that the patience and game planning of both um, Usman and his camp is is phenomenal. But I think a big piece of that is also the the tape study, because if you I don't know if you saw the video afterwards where the last time that Masvidal was knocked out was virtually the exact same punch right he's gotten dropped by that punch i think he got dropped in pride or a different organization in japan he got dropped in the ufc by it and then he got dropped by usman in championship yeah so the film study um by his camp was just spot on so i think it's more than simply the idea of of mixing it in but having a sophisticated enough team that they're going to mix it in and set you up for for lack of a better word a secret weapon right they they saw that flaw. They read his game and said, "This is the if we're gonna beat him in the standup, this this is the window we're gonna slide in. This exact window." Versus that was similar to the of, head kick on Daniel Cormier, the left high kick. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like seeing, oh, okay, this this is a weakness or a tell or something predictable in their game that we can use against them. And so I think if you if you funnel the game in that way, where it's like we understand we have an advantage over here. We're going to use our advantage over here, but we're still going to step into this realm that the other our opponent might think they have the advantage. But even if they might have the advantage in these certain scenarios, we see this crease of their game where they're weak and we can exploit that. I think it's just 
you know, like that was a supreme moment of game planning, and we've seen that from various teams over the over the years when it's not just let's do stand up or let's do ground. It's not anything that general. It's this person has a weakness to the overhand right in this scenario, or this person has a weakness to the ankle pick in this scenario, or you know this person leans the wrong direction, so they're vulnerable for a head kick in this scenario. And then having the rest of your game, the rest of your tools kind of corral them towards that scenario. And so that's kind of like your, your, your lottery ticket for the match. But then you have an overarching ticket that even if you don't get to punch that lottery ticket for the big win, you're slowly winning the game as well. It's, it's having those layers of, of means of winning the fight. And so I completely agree about, about that. The Leon Edwards situation, I, I think that, yes, he, everyone knows he was winning that fight, but also there is that that notion of, like, you know, a puncher's chance. So the longer you're in the ring with someone, when you're relying upon a, a five-round win against a, another dangerous, adrenaline-filled, elite-level competitor, every second you're in there is risky. And so Usman did have the fight won. Everyone knew that. I don't think that anyone saw the Hail Mary knockout coming, except unless that was a, a read by his camp that his camp was planning for all five rounds. But I don't believe that, that anyone in Leon's camp was planning to be in that scenario and then pull off a head kick in the last seconds. I'd, I'd be very surprised if that was the, the game plan from, from Jump Street. To be honest, I think that Leon's camp did prep for that, for the throw the two for him to slip it just to hit him with the crane kick. I think, yeah. I think they, they pre- definitely prepped it. It was just Probably the fact, yeah, it was just the fact that you don't prep to get your, get your fighter to gas out. You, you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you never <laughs> prep for that. Yeah. One fighter that you brought up like only a little bit ago was Leota Machida. Little fun fact about him is that he's actually a way craftier fighter than people gave him credit for. Because if you look at his stats, he has a alarmingly high takedown accuracy. Do you know this? Yeah, yeah. Because the thing is, I think he's a very crafty fighter. Because he was actually—I don't know if—he if, uh, was a sumo. The part of his background was sumo. Like he was a wrestler. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. If you look up, um, he wasn't a sumo like competing in like Yokozuma or anything. But like his wrestling background, we talk about American folk style or the Dagestani's or judoka was actually sumo wrestling and a lot of and it's kind of a crazy thing so and a big part of what he was good at doing was mixing the ranges and, and shifting between his karate and some of his kickboxing that he, he learned as well and his foot sweeps and, and some takedowns so like because he mixed it up I always that was to me as someone who had a, a traditional martial arts background as well like just one of the most beautiful martial artists to ever watch in the UFC because of how efficient he was and how okay he was with just not being hit and especially in the beginning when he was so hated for being boring that was actually my favorite Leota Machida because he was just like I don't care you're not hitting me I'm taking no damage and I'm winning this fight and I I loved it but he got booed and you know it is entertainment so I I get how if you are not a martial artist how you don't want to watch somebody you know slide around and move the entire time and just do footwork you want to see action when i have a particular goal that i want to achieve i set out tasks similar to your checklist goal strategy 
I like to set out the tasks in dot points with little tick boxes to figure out how we're going to get this goal done. You were talking to me about you setting goals and then making a checklist around the goal. Can you run us through your methodology? So the idea for any position that I'm trying to gain expertise in or, or learn about or whether I'm trying to engineer it or reverse engineer it, because a big thing with me is I always like to think about it from, from both sides, from the offensive side and the defensive side. So if I, if I just say, imagine I d didn't have all my user experience, right? And I just, blam, I'm, I'm a white belt again. And I keep getting triangled, right? And I'm sick of being triangled. Well, one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to think about, well, how does a triangle work? How can I organize this into something that I might have some information about? And so to do that, I'm going to start trying to triangle other people. And truthfully, as a beginner, it's great because you're going to screw up a bunch. And so maybe I'll mess up my angle. Boom. So now I know that's one thing. Angle matters. Or maybe they posture up. Okay, their, their posture apparently matters. That's the second thing I have on the checklist. So everywhere that I can possibly fail becomes another note on my checklist. And so I'll be building my, my kind of rough checklist there by playing the offensive side of things. Then I go back to defense and I kind of try to make them fail in the ways that, that I failed when I was on offense. And I'll usually will end up with most things a list. The list doesn't have to be perfect. But then you kind of, what I like to do is to figure out, can I give you some of the things? So if you think about the way a traditional triangle is taught, the very first thing is I need to have one arm and one head inside of the legs, right? If there's two arms and the head in there, you might be able to do stuff like high guard, but it's not really a triangle anymore. So thing number one, checklist, I must isolate the head and the arm from the other arm. Boom. Thing number two, I'm usually going to try to create an angle. Most people kind of grab under the armpit, under the legs. I'm kind of trying to look in their ear. So creating an angle. But then you'll find exceptions where people stay square. So maybe this angle thing isn't absolutely perfect, but it seems to be that the angle of me relative to my opponent matters. Then again, the posture. Um, posturing up is the go-to escape. You'll occasionally see situations where people are able to follow you up and, and swing into mount, but usually posture matters. And then there's this uh, the infamous arm across. To arm across or not to arm across? Because one of the first defenses you're taught right, is to kind of overhook that leg is one of the classic uh, defenses that's also taught. And then I figure out, can I, can I do those? And what I'll usually do is see how many of those things on the checklist I can give you and still not be choked or strangled. And I'll do that with a friend if I have a friend who wants to drill with me or these days because I'm a bit more, I guess, cavalier with my rolling, I'll just put myself in a triangle in a roll. Like, I'm a very big fan of drilling against people who don't know that I'm drilling because it gives me a real response. I'll, I'll literally just, perp like, beyond, like, there's one thing to just, like, okay, we're going to do back controls. But I'm going to, either in a live roll or in a drilling situation, just shove myself in a triangle. Now, if I'm doing this, I, I might fail. In fact, I do fail sometimes, and I'll figure it out. But this is kind of the way that I can figure out, okay, I'm going to focus on one thing, just posture. I'm only going to posture. I'll give you everything else you want. I'll put my arm across. Anything else you want, I'm just going to do posture. And I realize, okay, that works pretty well. Okay, well, what if my posture is broken? Okay, my posture is broken. Let's mess with other things. 
I'm going to talk about a different angle, not the angle of the person attacking, but the angle of my neck. This is one that I can't take credit for. I, I learned this from Chris Payne's before the pandemic, at least probably 2019 or early 2020. And he talked about this idea that triangles are made for people whose necks are vertical and rotated facing you. So they're expecting your arteries to exist on the left and the right. If I turn my head and my entire body so that my arteries are up and down, it doesn't matter how perfect your triangle looks. You're not choking my arteries anymore. Now you can squeeze my jaw, squeeze my face, make my life pretty freaking miserable. But if I just ruin that kind of spine to your legs angle, I'm never going to sleep. Now there's other issues, right? You might try and arm bar me, neck crank me. There's other problems, but the most important risk to me in any strangulation is falling asleep. Because everything else is a choice as to whether or not I want to give up. If I black out, it's just, it's over. I, I don't get a choice about that. I don't get a choice about that at all. So then I realized that like, oh, I can give people false positives. I can give you a shape that looks a lot like you're going to win the game with a triangle. But you fail. Another great one, a classic uh, bait that um, my coach used to do to me. He would purposely take that under the leg guard pass and shove his head in. And you're like, I'm going to get a triangle. I'm going to get a triangle. But he would trap your other leg with just a hand or a foot. And so when you get greedy and throw that leg over for that triangle and then you try to finish it and you fail, he passes your guard. And there's a wrestler who I used to train with. His name was uh, Mansur Hidari. He was a, a pro MMA fighter in cage rage back in the day. Um, Iranian wrestler, just absolute monster. All of his guard passes that he ever did when he was, he was my coach uh, for MMA back when I was a blue... No, that's a purple belt, I think. And he didn't have any guard passes. They were all giving you an armbar or giving you a triangle. And the second you tried to armbar or triangle him, he would pass your guard every time because he knew something. What he knew was if he knew what you were going to do or where you were going to be, and he was massively powerful. He weighed what I weighed, but he was like 5'2". So I'm 185, he's 185. I'm 5'10", he's 5'2". The amount of muscle on that man was preposterous. Like, he would bicep curl out of my arm bars. Like he was, it was hilarious trying to do jiu-jitsu against him. But because he understood that, he, he knew where I was going to be, and he decided where I was going to be, he could always pass my guard. But if he just sat down in front of me and tried to do Toriando, he couldn't pass my guard. He didn't have sophisticated guard passing. His entire guard passing was predicated on either an MMA style punching me, or when we were just doing grappling where he couldn't punch me, giving me what I want and punishing me for it. And so I think he was a great example. He didn't explicitly make checklists, but he was utilizing the same thing. He would give me a piece of what I thought I wanted, but punish me because I didn't realize that there was a key detail missing. And understanding which of the details your coach gives you or you give yourself for your moves, which is more valuable is immensely important in how you're kind of prioritizing your steps in your move. But then on defense, it allows you to give people fool's gold. And I think giving people's fool's gold is the best bait. You just explained how you did the arteries with the triangle, which is ridiculously interesting. Do you have any of those similar tricks for something like an armbar? In the case of an armbar, it's kind of the same thing. It's um, it's the angle. 
right? So everybody knows, in the case of an armbar, that if my wrist is like so, you're going to break my arm. But if I put my thumb inside of my hand, which gives you no access, because my hand's open, you have access to the uh, the meaty part of my palm, right? That, that meaty thumb meat. If you grab that, you control the rotation of my arm. Most people, when they do rear naked chokes, uh, they, they, sorry, they use the rear naked choke grip on their arm bars. So they are giving up rotational control of my wrist for better control by putting my wrist in the crook of their elbow, which gives me the ability to spin my arm over. Now, just spinning my arm over isn't enough. The next detail, and um, I have to give a shout out to Preet Mickelson because he's the one who showed this to me. He has an escape called the Reverse Hitchhiker. And he says he first saw Muhammad Ali um, do it. Not that Muhammad Ali, but um, the Muhammad Ali of Jiu-Jitsu, obviously. And it's instead of hitchhiking this way, he turns his thumb down. And if you remember the famous Vinny Magalhaes versus Fabrizio Verdum, where he just kind of sat there and everyone's like, oh, Vinny's got a rubber arm. I mean, Vinny is known for letting people damage his body. So there's probably a bit of that has to do with his flexibility and pain tolerance. But what he did was he stacked his shoulders on top of each other. He turned his hand downward. And instead of having his back flat on the floor, he brought his bottom shoulder underneath his near side shoulder, which increased the height of the fulcrum. So now if you're going to bridge through his arm, you get a bridge way higher. And then simultaneously by having his thumb pointed down and using his free hand to kind of cover his head and keep that foot of the way, he's not allowing Fabri um, Verdum to attach deeply to his shoulder, which he needs, because I... Uh, there's a principle called joint lock theory for me, which is that every joint submission, any, every submission that is breaking or hyperextending a joint has to control deeply something that is proximal, proximal meaning closer to the core of the body from the thing you're trying to break. We're trying to break the elbow. We're going to try and control the shoulder and something distal, which is closer to the end of the lever being the hand. So you're attaching to the hand and attaching to the shoulder. And in doing so, you want to have a deep connection. Well, he lost some control with the shoulder because he took that hand over the head, right? Because everyone always talks about not, cr not crossing your ankles and all this stuff. The cross of the ankles isn't the important part. It's the fact that are you controlling something proximal? If you cross your ankles and you don't control the, the far shoulder was even better, even the near shoulder, then your opponent's going to get away. Ronda Rousey had such an amazing high percentage armbar because she would almost always control the far shoulder. If I had the far shoulder, I misalign your spine, and I definitely have the near shoulder if I have the far shoulder. And so if I can get my, my far shoulder free, because I don't want to be in a Ronda Rousey-style armbar. I want to be in that, that armbar that's more popular is the classic one with this foot over the head, foot over the arm. I can, I can free my bottom shoulder. I stack my shoulders, turn my wrist down, and by, instead of having a thumb out, I hide my thumb. Now it's harder for you to control that thumb meat because that real estate's smaller. Versus here, with my hand open, there's just so much real estate in that thumb pad for you to kind of handshake me and turn my wrist. So that's me obsessing over the notion of angle. Another one is obviously depth. Angle and depth are probably in joint locks the two most important details. The angle of your limb and the depth of your limb. Um... Two of my friends, right? Chris and Preet, I just kind of shamelessly stole their shit and then analyzed why it worked. But even before those particular details, this notion of giving people what they think they want 
I learned it at Blue Belt from, uh, you know, Coach Mansoor. So, like, my whole view of jiu-jitsu is just constantly taking not just the techniques from my friends and coaches and peers, but deconstructing them and figuring out why these things work and then finding patterns. Because for me, if I can take truth, um, I call them jiu-jitsu truths. Um, Chris Paynes calls them grappling laws. Um, just things that have to be true. It's not a matter of opinion. It's just the body only moves a certain ways. If every single move in jiu-jitsu relies upon being between someone's armpits and their hips or armpits in the back of their knee, that, that, that's just the truth. If you look at every single grappling art, underhooks are a thing. In, in every version of wrestling around the world, people realize that your armpit's a good thing to grab. Like, it's just, whether it be directly through an underhook or indirectly through your clothing. So, that method has just proven so useful to me, just to synthesize the specifics and bring them into general and then try to keep up a list of these, these clean sentences of my understanding of grappling. And then whenever I have a new move, does it satisfy these things? And if I find a new move that breaks one of my laws, I must redefine it. My favorite example of redefining uh, a classic saying, the classic saying is position before submission, usually meaning the scoring positions of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Leg locks don't use those positions at all. They don't. So then, oh wait, well then now we think about control before submission. Because while they do not score points, they are indeed pins. They're just pins with your legs. And they're controlling the backs of the knees. Historically, the checklist was head, shoulders, hips. Well, with leg locks and wrestling, the back of the knees really, really important. So make it four. Head, shoulders, hips, backs, and knees. And then I learned the statement of, well, maybe not those points. Maybe it's the entire space from the armpit to the back of the knee. Or maybe it's the entire space from the head to here. Updating my view of jiu-jitsu from a list of points to two general spaces. So instead of four points, two spaces. Making my understanding more elegant as much as I can to simplify my view of jiu-jitsu so that when I'm going into rolling, instead of loading out, right, like a video game, you only have so many weapons you can, you can bring with you. You only have so many moves. I'm not going to bring a hundred jiu-jitsu moves into this match, but I can bring... Probably a couple of my A-game moves and combos, but then if I bring just five or six general concepts, I can derive my moves. I can derive my finishing mechanics from these guiding principles. When you decrease the amount of real estate here, when you're change, when you're stopping your opponent from gaining an armbar on you, what grip do you recommend for the off for the offensive jiu-jitsu player trying to get the arm bar uh, to mitigate the defense? What grip should we use? So it's not even necessarily about a specific grip. It's a shift in, in the view, right? Because the two problems that are happening, right, like I said, are depth and angle. And then this comes into an offensive principle that I talk about, which I occasionally call it destabilization or just put it, it's very simply weakening. If I'm going to try and hyperextend something, I don't want to deal with the full force of its power. I always assume that I'm going to be rolling with a talented super heavyweight because my life is a lot less competition than it is teaching seminars. And when I teach a seminar, 
after the seminar is over, everyone wants to roll. And I'm still young, and I want, until I get old, I'm going to try to roll everybody. And so when my travels, I'll run into exceptional human beings. Um, my friend Gutmunder in Iceland is around 365 pounds and is a European champion brown belt. And I believe either a national or world um, Icelandic belt wrestling glima champion. Just an absolute specimen of a human. If I attempt to do any joint lock on any piece of that human, and he simply just expresses the power that he has, because he's not... Think about, like, imagine Viking jacked Santa Claus. It's the best way to describe him. Because he has a little bit of a belly, but it's power. It's that power lifter body. If I don't misalign his spine or put one of his joints in compression or traction, I'm never, even with the advantages I have via jiu-jitsu and positioning, going to finish anything on him. So what I do is I, I use the, the classic burrito grip, right? That's my favorite, but it's not the only thing. In order to um, pull his arm into traction, because once his shoulder is in traction, he the neural signals going to his arm, he can't fully express. If you ever had someone um, put your knee or anything in traction, you feel weaker. The other thing is if compression. If you have someone knee bar you with a Muay Thai grip and they compress your knee, the range of motion you have drastically goes down. So if you have two joints, either I, I don't want them to be in this happy place where they can express their power. Either I want them in traction, where they're too separated and they get weak, or in compression, where they're smashed into each other and they also get weak. So I'll just do anything in my, can, in my power to put their elbow in traction. So that even if their arm is the wrong way, I'm putting it in traction so I drastically weaken it, and then I'm gonna attempt it's going to be hard to turn it, especially if we're sweaty, because this is still a small, it's a small head to the key, right? It's, it's not a big lever. If I could open their hand up, my life will be easier, but I might not be able to. So I'm going to have to really pull that into traction and attempt to turn it. At weight class, I can definitely turn it. But when I'm against super heavies in an absolute, there just might, there's always going to be a limit to jiu-jitsu. Because there's, we have weight classes for a reason, right? Like if jiu-jitsu was truly magic and size didn't matter... We wouldn't have weight classes. I think of jiu-jitsu as a force multiplier. Like Once again, going back to video games. It's jiu-jitsu, the skill of jiu-jitsu multiplies your base stats. But let's say that your jiu-jitsu is a 5. So all of your base stats are multiplied by 5. And your opponent's jiu-jitsu is a 4. Well, that means there's a limit depending on the, the gap in your base stats. right? Let's pretend that your base stats are a 10 and their base stats are a 10. Well, then obviously 50 is bigger than 40. But if their base stats are a 20 and your base stats are a 20 or a 10, well, guess what? Like, it's not going to be enough. The, the, the difference in their, your skill is not big enough to account for the difference in their, their power and other attributes. At least in the idea of overpowering their, their strength to uh, do a particular move. Obviously, styles make matches, so even if I don't have anything powerful enough to submit you, I might be clever enough to score a point on you or game plan you or win a match. But I usually think of jiu-jitsu how it is in the gym. In the gym, the only thing that really matters is submissions. Or moves that are so impressive that they get a, they get a, they get a ooh-ah out of your opponent, right? If someone hits you with that you know, head-over-heels 
big judo throw and you go wham and the whole gym looks. You didn't submit them. You didn't win. But you earned a little bit of their respect. Right? It's not a submission. It's nowhere. It's not as good as a submission, but they have to acknowledge that, ah, you got me. Versus if, you, if they just kind of stumble a sloppy takedown on you, like you're not getting any respect for that. And so because my main goal in my rolling with people is not really to beat them. It's usually to prove to them that whatever the heck I just taught them isn't bullshit. So I don't have to submit everybody to do that, but I do have to, I do have to at least try to show them that the shit that I'm talking about makes my life better. Right? I, I should not be able to beat a super heavyweight who has as much skill as me. That just doesn't make any sense. I should be able to beat a super heavyweight who's a beginner, for sure. Like, otherwise, what have I been doing for 20 years? Fuck. <laughs> I looked on your Instagram. How often do you incorporate donuts into your diet? Donuts. <laughs> I do love donuts. Actually, not that often. They're, uh, I'm a very big fan of culture and food. So wherever I am in the world, whatever that place is known for, whatever is delicious about that place, I'm going to partake. So uh, when we were in Vegas and I think a few other places, the place that someone told me about, like a really famous donut spot. And so I wanted to go there. And so the same thing like when I was in Japan, like I don't know how much ramen and udon and yaki tori and yaki niku. Like we, Natasha and I ate so much food. Um, when I was in Australia, I was asking them like what's an Australian thing to eat? And I wanted to eat emu and then I found out that it's your national bird and apparently like that's not cool. I've never eaten it. Um, you're, you're, allowed to eat, you're allowed to eat kangaroo. I've never heard of anyone trying to eat an emu. That's fucked up. Well, so the thing is, I didn't know because in the U.S., way back, when I, shortly after I graduated college, we had this restaurant in town that had exotic foods. And they had on the menu, like, emu steaks. And I got it, and like what looked like a cow steak came out, a beef steak. And I was like, hey, I ordered the emu. He's like, emu's red meat. And he like got a little like snotty with me. And I was like, oh, well, shit, I guess I'm stupid. It was the most tender and amazing, like more tender, like the most tender piece of meat I've ever had. Like, it was amazing, absolutely amazing. And so I wanted to try it again. I had no idea that it was uh, like the equivalent of me ordering American Eagle at the U.S. Like I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> Could I please have some Eagle? Yeah, so like I didn't get a chance to try that. But the uh, kangaroo was good. But honestly, in general, just the food in general in Australia was quite nice. It kind of, at least Perth, reminded me of like this weird mixture of a bunch of places. Because I'm from Florida. My sister used to live in Hawaii. And so I visited her there. It kind of reminded me of Hawaii a little bit and a little bit of Florida. Like... It's like this weird mix of a lot of places all over the world. Perth was really unique. I don't know how uh, how it is in the rest of Australia, but I, I really, really liked it. And so I didn't, I didn't really, other than like someone wanted to give me Vegemite, which I, you know, that wasn't, wasn't something that was really all that uh, exciting. But like anywhere else, uh, I, I do love food. So donuts are not that frequent. I don't go out of my way to buy them, but if you buy me donuts, I will eat them. That's kind of my general rule with most most things that are bad for me. Like, I don't buy beer very often, but when I'm in Europe, Germans like buying you beer. And so if you buy me a beer, I'll probably drink it. But I don't tend to go out of my way for things that are that are pretty uh, junk foody or, or bad for me. But I'm, I'm a sucker for someone buying them for me. I do have to say, Melbourne, you need to come down to Melbourne. It's the bottom right of Australia, and it's like... 
a mixture of everything in the world all in one place and everyone's really chill here and um, I do recommend coming to just where I'm located currently. I think well, you would enjoy it thoroughly. time that we head out to that side of the world, Natasha already had a plan. She really wants to go to New Zealand. So if we're going to be going to New Zealand, because we've never been to New Zealand, we'll definitely, and there's some, uh, my friends in Perth definitely want to have me back out. So I'll have to make a, allocate a few, I think we only were in Australia for like, four or five something very short four days or so so next time we'll probably have to allocate like a, a full like two weeks or something to really get around and see stuff but also not just do jiu-jitsu you know like see because it was just so pretty and we didn't even just a little bit that we saw was gorgeous and we were mainly cause i was sick when i was in australia and so i didn't get to do as much as i would have otherwise because i was i was coming off of uh some food poisoning i got in a previous location but um from donuts not from donuts from some uh some some suspicious chicken that i had uh i had a, in, a, in a previous destination <laughs> but uh i've been pretty my stomach's been pretty lucky around the years like i, I got the uh i got the, the the food poisoning in in thailand when i was at craig jones's healer camp in uh, in phuket thailand has amazing drugs though when it comes to healing that stuff i told the pharmacist what was going on they gave me, like, a pill, and 24 hours later, I was cured, like, magic. What'd like, they give you? I don't remember what it was. This was, like, back in 20, either 2018 or 2019. I think it was 2018. This was back in 2018. I don't remember the name of it, but I remember that they, I had the last dose, because, like, half the camp got so tired from training that we messed up and drank some water and just got sick, but that pill was magical i comparatively speaking like i've been sick and throughout my life but i've never had something that got me better so fast but other than that been to india been to mexico ecuador and then didn't get didn't get sick um so just maybe i'm getting a little weaker as i get older because those those other trips i was a little bit younger i don't know my stomach needs to work on its iron abilities it's it's an old saying. My mom was really big my whole childhood. Whenever I anything happened, she always had like a wise saying. So when the SATs came along, which is like our standardized testing for college, and had analogies, I did amazing on it. My whole life, like my mom always had had a saying for everything. So that's hilarious. Like like I don't even I don't even know that many analogies compared to compared oh, to that. Yeah, like how many did she have? Oh. Dozens. So like a stitch in time saves nine. Penny wise, pound foolish. Um, sorry, don't save soldier lorry. Mind you, I'm in America, so I don't know British parlance. I never, my whole childhood, I thought it was sorry, don't save soldier Larry. As if there's some soldier named Larry. I don't know what happened to him. Maybe he died. But my sorry is not going to save him. I only found out later that it's not Larry, it's lorry. And a lorry, I only found out later that a lorry is a truck. I had no idea about what any of these, because my mom is from Jamaica, and so she was raised in the English system. And so same thing with spelling class. I was in the second grade, had my mom check my spelling homework, and she started adding a bunch of extra letters and stuff, and I got all my stuff wrong. And I realized that, like, oh, like my mother's version of English is, is going to make me fail school. 
So like, because British English loves adding U's into color and stuff and all this stuff that us Americans do, don't do. Do you guys do the U's in color and all that stuff in Australia, or do you do the? We do one? United Kingdom English, yes. Yeah, so you guys, you guys like putting U's in places and all kinds of stuff. So like, in my opinion, I think it's just the superior English. <laughs> Wouldn't you agree? Well played, well played. Well, see, the two Americans, we actually seem to think so. There's like a study done. Like if you, if you say something in a, an English or an Australian accent, you are assumed to be more intelligent. The same way that if you put on glasses and say the same thing, you're like Americans think that things said in an English accent are smarter, just regardless of what you're saying. Not all the English accents, right? Because, like, obviously, Cockney's not going to accomplish that same goal. But um, your 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 Queen's English, we Americans love that shit. We eat it up. We eat it up. I apparently, from all my traveling and like learning other languages, my accent isn't always placed as American anymore. Because I kind of have a gained the habit of singing my English from uh from learning Spanish and a few other things. So like, people ask me where I'm from in my own country regularly. So, like, I always got the, the where are you from in South Florida because South Florida is a lot of immigrants. And so, like, people assumed that I was Latino, that I was Dominican or, or Mexican or, or, or Brazilian or something. And, and so, but now, and I used to just be like, oh, it's because I'm brown. But now, like, it's literally my, even my family tells me, like, I don't really speak English the way that I did before I started traveling and learning languages. So, it's kind of a, a weird thing where my... Uh, my experience has changed how I speak. That is the exact same thing with my family because I'm my family is from Greek origin and Greek language is similar to the speed of Spanish um, linguistic whatever, right? So because because the pace of the language is similar, when you hear me speak English, the way if I if I really get into it and I start going fast and fast paced it's actually just greek it's actually just the greek but with english words yeah correct and so the thing is with me like because my family like my mother was really big on wanting us to be able to get ahead in america and have a, a good life she tried her best to not speak patois to us not speak jamaican patois like the way that you would see like rastafarians or like uh Bahamas, yeah your bamba class yeah whenever people are uh are kind of doing the Jamaican caricatures. That's what they're speaking. They're speaking Jamaican Jamaican patois. But like my mom didn't want us to speak that way. She wanted us to be able to, you know, kind of assimilate into American culture. My sisters and my mom can still speak patois. My sisters just kind of taught themselves. I'm the only one in the family who cannot speak patois. I can understand it, but I um, but I I can't speak it. And so it, it's interesting that you said that with the the cadence because patois is kind of like that. Like a lot of it is. It's English words, but the cadence and the word order is, is, is a bit different. But funny that you said Greek because my, uh, my brother-in-law is Greek. And so he speaks fluent Greek. And my, uh, my nephew and I are starting to learn a little bit of Greek um, for him. And also for the, the little bit of times that we've, we've taught Jiu-Jitsu in, Greek, in Greece, Natasha and I. Like just a little bit of like, you know, Efkaristo and Parakalo and, you know, like Kalimaira and Kalinikta. Just little, little words I've always found. It's appreciated when you go places that people realize that you're trying to even learn a little bit of the language uh, versus just kind of assuming everyone's going to change and speak English for you. 
if you look at a whole bunch of English words, all their origins um, are Greek, and and there's heaps of Latin. There's heaps of Latin. Yeah, but... That was one of the things they did in the school when I was a kid. They, we had to memorize our Greek and Latin roots to expand our vocabulary. When I looked into particular words, because Greek has so many words, I believe it's like 900,000, whilst English has around 300,000, right? So it's triple. And when you go to Greece, they don't use they don't use the words, right? Like my <laughs> mum, my mum, when she went to Greece, some person spoke to her, she's fluent, and she didn't know what they were saying. Some of the words, she understood the vibe, she just didn't really get uh, some of the words in the in the middle of them. Some of the words have so many syllables, it's actually ridiculous. Another thing is that Russian and Serbian, I believe, is ancient Greek lettering. So you know how you see yeah, those Russian, Cyrillic, see those, yeah. yeah, see those weird Russian symbols. I believe that was the ancient Greek. Uh, alphabet as in the Greeks, because we're always constantly improving. We made a better alphabet. So we took that one, we gave the shitter one away. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm gonna enjoy. I'm gonna enjoy coming to visit you, man. <laughs> yeah, no. Nah, if if uh, some some of the some of the times I look back at these podcasts and I go, "Fuck, you need to cut that shit out." Like, like. No, man. Because... That's that's the flavor, man. That's the flavor. You gotta you gotta be able I, to. I know. Uh, to I know, fun. but. Yeah, the problem with it is that if I if I sometimes I Google it, sometimes I Google it, and I'm only slightly wrong, and because I'm like, I, I don't know what's wrong with me. I need to I need to be right. If I fuck it up, That's like I know people notes, will use it. Right? You got show notes, so if you make any mistakes, you Google it afterwards, and then you put it in the show notes, and you can be like, hey, I know I said A B C one two three, but actually it's A B C one two four. Well done. You all fixed your thing. I'm the same way <laughs> because smart. I have a bad habit of speaking confidently about things that I don't actually know 100%, but they sound, they sound really true. They sound like they could be true. And so I had to, um, I noticed this because way back when I was in high school, I was the only one in my friend group in the honors classes, in the AP classes. Not the only one, like one of like two. And so when I would just take guesses at people's questions, they just believe me and I'd be like, hey, hey, I don't actually know that that's true. I've, it just sounds good. Like I, I, <laughs> so I realized that like when you speak confidently, you got to be careful. So, but now we have cell phones. So like anytime I do that, I'm like, hold on, let me Google it or let me chat GPT it. Chat GPT you can't even trust because it hallucinates. So like, let me Google it and like make sure that I'm not full of shit. And so you, you keep going with it, man. It's, it's great because it, it adds to the discourse and then you can double check yourself. It's all good. What principle of BJJ is underrated that people are overlooking right now i think it's still being uh, there's a couple i guess like in jujitsu it's easy it's starting to happen right like i had the uh instructional for uh it, it became un unstoppable stand-ups with chris paynes but we i had that instructional ready to record with bj fanatics like months before and it was supposed to be called just stand up but we waited because Chris had to come to America to record it. And then Craig put his out. And I was like, no! Um, I think that any time that you're in guard or any time that you're on bottom, the notion that you standing up is an option. It's an option. Um, not the only thing that you can do, but it's always an option. I think that we get obsessed in jiu-jitsu that like, I'm playing guard. 
and I need to pull you towards me. I need to break you down or I need to sweep you or submit you, right? I'm stuck in those three things, right? Hugging you really close, sweeping you, or setting up a submission. But making space and retreating in order to stand up is always an option. If I have a guard, I can always do that because I have a guard. I'm the one controlling you and I can move backwards into space. I can always move backwards into space. But very, very often we have a tendency to move forward into our opponent and then they stop us, right? You try to pull your partner down, they're going to posture up. You try to come to them, they're going to push you back down. How can they stop you from running away? They have to attach to you. And especially in Nogi, it's been past the first minute, pulling is very hard because you slip. There's a very small number of grips in Nogi Jiu-Jitsu that allow you to pull effectively once you've been sweating and you get wet. But there's a million ways you can push. Pushing in Jiu-Jitsu versus pushing in, in, in Gi Jiu-Jitsu, is, it's almost the same. But pulling, pulling is where it changes. You are pretty much made of rope when you're playing Gi. So pulling you is very easy. But it's not so easy in Nogi. And so I think that almost every time, if I begin technical stand-up, I can technical stand-up for anywhere. If I begin to technical stand-up, hip heist to a knee, you have two choices. Either you chase me to keep me down, and as you overextend yourself, I will sweep you because you've taken yourself off your own base, or you don't chase me, and I get to stand up. And now I get to be up and you're down, and I get to wield gravity. Ever since I changed the way that I look at being on top and decided to, des to describe it as the person on top gets to wield gravity, as if like it's a superpower, because it is. like Getting to wield the force of gravity, getting to feel stronger than you actually are because you have just the ability to lean on someone and cause the pressure. I can't lean on you if I'm on the bottom. But once, I'm, once my head is higher than your head, I can lean on you. That's a superpower. Like leaning on people is a superpower versus squeezing them. I just watched the Kanan uh, Duarte match um, and um, Polaris. Him versus everybody, but particularly him versus Fabrizio Andre. Everyone was having hell dealing with Fabrizio Andre. He took out Giancarlo Bodoni, ADCC, 88 kilo champion. Shocking. He he took out everybody. But Kanon, if you look at his stance, he's almost falling down. Like almost everybody else was, was vertical trying to um to pass. First off, he was able to sweep him by attaching his upper body. But once he was on top, he was leaning so much that he didn't even have to. He's a very big, strong you know, 99 kilo man. But the fact that he's leaning on you means you're bearing his weight. So I would say that that is the biggest thing is the fact that you have the choice to retreat and stand up to decide to be the one on top, right? Classic Jiu-Jitsu says, Chris Hauteur, right? Be the man on top, be the one on top. But I think a lot of us have been seduced by our guards and we just kind of cling and we get smashed. Can you tell us about Workshop BJJ and Muay Thai in New York? How often have you been going there? And what did you work on with people there? Man, you did your research. I freaking love that place. Um, I've only been there once. Um, my girlfriend, Natasha, um, I don't know how she got there. If she just found it or if I got a recommendation. But she had gone there without me when she was in New York. And so then she was really excited when we got to you New know, York. Uh, got to go to New York together, that she could recommend a spot to me. Because generally when we go places, I'm like, hey, I have a spot. And she's like, surprise, I got a spot for you. 
And the head coach there, Jin, is just a phenomenal coach. He's, um, I think he originally started workshop with Aaron Millam, um, who's a, a down on her black belt. And a, a, the impressive thing about workshop to me wasn't just that he taught a great class, right? He taught, honestly, a great class. Like, I wouldn't change anything. And I'm a very kind of picky guy when it comes to teaching. Like, when it comes to rolling, like, I'm much more forgiving, like... We all have our, our physical abilities and restrictions and this and that, and I'm not perfect. We like rolling is one thing, but when it comes to teaching, like because of how obsessed I've been with how to communicate ideas and how to form a class and keep people engaged, I'm pretty picky about teaching. Jin taught a beautiful class, and then I realized when I was rolling with his students that like I might have more experience than them, but they don't just give me things. They they weren't really making the classic mistakes. I travel a lot. And most gyms will have areas that their students are strong and areas their students are weak. If I go to a leg lock heavy gym, they're going to be amazing at leg locks. It's going to be hard to leg lock them, but their, their guard retention might be low or their takedowns might be low. There, there's usually going to be some piece of their game that is lacking because they've focused on leg locks. I go to a, a very gi-heavy school. They're, they might have some great guard passing or some great judo, but maybe they don't do leg locks, right? Usually, I can find some corner of the game that is just kind of an easy path. I always kind of probe when I'm rolling with people to kind of find the, the path of least resistance. If I realize, wow, this guy is amazing at wrestling, Depending on my goal, I'm either going to avoid his wrestling like the plague or wrestle with him. If I want to get better, oh, I found out you're great at wrestling, guess what? I'm wrestling you. But if I just want to become out victorious and I find out you're a great wrestler, well, I'm going to pull guard and annoy you a little bit. I might get back up occasionally, but just I'm going to stay away from the thing that you're amazing at if my goal is just to beat you. But when I'm rolling, my goal is usually to get better. So it's usually to try and and sh showcase my jiu-jitsu while also trying to defeat your best thing if i feel that i have experience gap on you which i usually do because i've been training a long time other than against other gym owners or high level competitors when i'm entering the gym like if i was if i'm gonna roll with another black belt i i just roll with them but if i'm rolling with a blue belt or a purple belt i'll usually try to find the best part of their game and, and play them there the impressive thing about his students is that i couldn't really find areas where they were completely ignorant their wrestling was great their leg lock understanding was great their guard passing guard retention their framing um all around his students were just yeah i could tell that the way that he made his curriculum was so meticulous and kind of just well-rounded that it was very hard even with his his uh colored belts to to find easy wins I had to combo and layer my attacks and set traps and, and do novel things in order to, to catch them or lean to my physicality, which I don't like to do. I like to reserve my physicality as a last resort because if I, if I have to use my physicality to beat you, then that means that my skill wasn't enough. And to me, like that's fine if I'm, if I'm just trying to win, but my goal in practice is to make jiu-jitsu look like magic. I want to be able to roll for three hours. And if I have to tap into my physicality in every roll, I will be exhausted long before three hours. So I absolutely love the place. I highly recommend it. Jin is a, is a, is a wizard. I met some great people there as well. I've only been once, but like, I'll still recommend anyone going to New York. 
Like everybody immediately thinks of Marcelo Garcia or Henzo Gracie or Unity, but um, for me, uh, that place workshop and also Jason Rao's spot. I went. To, I used to train, go to train with Jason Rao when he was at um, Matt Serra's, but now he's as Vanguard. I haven't been to Vanguard yet, but those two for me are are real gems. Just I, I really, or even uh, and John Callistines as well. As teachers, I just I, I really enjoy how they communicate jiu-jitsu and always learn something from those guys. That's all we have time for, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much, Charles, for coming on the show. Is there any final remark you want to say to the fans at home? Words of motivation if someone doesn't have their life where they want it to be or someone wants to start jiu-jitsu, anything that you can give, words of inspiration to the viewers watching this podcast? Words of inspiration. Um, anything that you're afraid of doing, anything that you've built up a fear of and putting off, is a million times easier than what you think it is. The the fear, the, the boogeyman in your head is always bigger than the actuality. And almost everything I've ever done in my life that was scary or hard, doing it was way easier than stressing about procrastinating doing it. Most things are just much easier than you think. Um, a friend of mine just came up with a, a quote of, um, what you need is on the other side of the thing that you're avoiding. Follow Charles Harriet on Instagram, link in the description, and follow Anything Combat on Spotify. See you guys next time. Bye-bye.